Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, my name is Roland Clark, and it's my pleasure to introduce Dr. James Karani, the author of Migrating Memory, Romanian Germans in Modern Europe, which came out with Cambridge University Press in December 2021. James is an Associate Professor of Modern European Cultural History at Durham, where he teaches courses on the history of travel and how seeing Europe from a transnational perspective changes our perceptions of it. James, so you grew up in Munich, which is a long way from Romania. Can you tell us what it was that drew you, drew you to write about the history of Romanian Germans? Well, thanks, first of all, Roland, for inviting me to talk about my book. I'm really delighted to, to, to be able to discuss this with you today. I mean, as you, as you hint at, there's always a sort of autobiographical element to what we do and how we talk about our, our research. And there are various ways of doing this. One, you can tell this kind of straightforward intellectual academic story saying, you know, I was invested in this as an undergraduate, then I moved on to this in, in postgraduate uh, uh, studies. And that, that is always part of the story. But um, as, I, as I try to explain in the book, in some ways, as every research is, this is also very much influenced by my own uh, experiences, by my own autobiography or biography. Um, I, myself, I'm a multiple migrant. So I grew up in Germany, as you said, but... Um, on my mother's side, um, my family um, are from England. Uh, on my father's side, um, they are Hungarian Jews, but are also multiple migrants in that way, um, from Budapest, but not originally from Budapest. Um, they then moved to the UK in two different, on two different occasions in the 1930s, and then uh, for my father's, in my father's case, in 1957, just after the Hungarian Revolution. And I grew up in Munich. And it's here, really, particularly at secondary school, where I encountered Germans who had strange accents, um, who didn't sound like they were from Munich or from Germany. Um, and so one uh, teacher in particular, a Sudeten German, fascinated me in some ways. But then there were others who had very particular accents, and these were actually Romanian Germans. So a teacher, a couple of teachers, actually, and my really good friend to this, very, to, to this day, Frank, um, who was born in Sibiu and um, his family left for Germany um, just before 1989 when he was a young child. Um, and I think while I wasn't necessarily re reflecting on this um, um, actively while, while writing this book, it certainly played a role. This is also about me trying to make sense of my, of my own life, but also the people that I, I encountered. And so my, my uh, gymnasium or secondary school in the suburbs of Munich, in some ways, is always there. I can I can see it. I can feel it when I'm when I'm you know when I was writing it. When I'm looking at it now, 
um, it, it's it's kind of there. My 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 encounter with Germans who had this strange, unusual background, at least unusual to the sort of untrained eye that um, I certainly had when when growing up. Um, so that that is the really strong biographical aspect, I think, of how in some ways I became interested in Romanian history. If I can add just one other uh, point, um, I mentioned my very good friend Frank. And I think part part of the reason why we bonded so so well um, at secondary school is also that we shared this background in East Central Europe that somehow also set us apart. And maybe there was something sort of uh, very hubristic about us as teenagers saying, you know, we, we, we know more. We have sort of a different, unusual background that others can't really share or don't really share with us. So I think that, that sort of took me or drew me uh, towards uh, Romanian history and then in particular this history of this uh, German minority or these German minorities more broadly. I always suspect when um, when students are listening to me talk that they're actually listening to my Australian accent and they don't really hear anything I say. Uh, so you've just confirmed that, which which is nice to hear that, you know, what stays with you many years later was the accent that your teacher had, not anything that they actually taught you. Um, just so we're on the same page here, exactly who are we talking about when we talk about Romanian Germans? The book focuses on two distinct groups, if I'm not mistaken, the Swabians in the Banat and the Saxons in Transylvania. Who are these people and where did they come from? Yeah, this is this is a. It, it seems a straightforward question, Roland, but actually it becomes really complex because there's always a danger in telling these historical narratives and and just repeating the very myths that these groups tell themselves. So namely, that there's a kind of straight line from often the medieval period through to the present, and that somehow um, they're, 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 they're sort of unchanged. There's a continuity through the ages, or in this case, um, through centuries. Um, particularly for Saxons, for the Transylvanian Saxons, I think. That, that is a particular problem. And so one of the issues I had to grapple with in, in writing the book was to, on the one hand, give enough historical context for readers to understand who exactly is, it is we're talking about, while at the same time also embedding it in the kind of very myth-making that Saxons and Swabians draw. And so just very briefly, um, Saxons um, are, are really German speakers who scholarship would say, come from the Mosel-Franconian region of what is today Germany and Luxembourg and, and parts of France. Um, we know this also from, from sort of linguistics because they share their accent with, uh, with Luxembourgish, for instance, and that, that plays a big role, uh, particularly in the late 20th, early 21st century as a kind of shared fate uh, and, and, and a shared enterprise in, in, in Europe. Um, but of course, there's, there's not a story of continuity as such, uh, and nonetheless, their first arrival and their first documented arrival in the in the in the uh, mid twelfth century plays a big role. They they sort of arrive as settlers, as German speaking settlers in Transylvania, uh, in response to a call issued by the Hungarian king King Geza II. Um, and very quickly, they have privileges enshrined, which plays a significant role in the twentieth century because they're also in the nineteenth century where they live under constant under the constant fear that their privilege their privileged position is being chipped away and uh, um, and downgraded and so these privileges are enshrined in 1224 only nine years after Magna Carta it's worth bearing that in mind how how important actually this moment is a, 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 an, an astonishing document in, in so many ways 
Um, but then over the years, there are different groups that join these uh, Sax, so-called Saxons, German speakers in Transylvania, and, and help really develop the region into the, the kind of region that we recognize um, from the early modern period onwards, which is a region that is quite urban. It has fortified castle, hence castles, hence the German name Siebenbürgen, seven castles. Um, but we have different groups that arrive. Romanians are, of course, there. Hungarians are there. And, and there is a lot of inter, intermarriage, despite the claim to continuity. We have Hanseatic merchants that arrive in the mid-16th centuries. Um, these are city dwellers from the collapsing Hanseatic League, uh, which I think contributed further towards urbanization. Um, Banat Swabians, by contrast, just very uh, briefly, were part of a broader trend of German settlers in the 18th century. Um, unlike uh, Saxons, they didn't have a great claim to privilege or to any kind of enshrined rights. Um, they settled um, in the Banat, the Banat Swabians at least, but Swabians as a whole settled in the Banat, in the Bachka, in the Danube region. Uh, they were employed in agricultural work and in mining, though there was a distinct urban sense of Swabian life that also emerged in the 19th century. So if, if I can just say very, something very briefly about, about the roots and the, the origins and how that kind of fed into myth-making as well, that, that would be great. Um, so, as I said, Saxons draw on this kind of, or drew on this kind of story of, of uh, privilege, of superiority, and also besiegement in some ways, that they were always under siege, always under threat. And that comes from, the, you know, their experience of living in fortified, around fortified churches on the borderlands um, of empires. Um, uh, Swabians, by contrast, um, saw themselves very much as fulfilling some kind of path of ordeal. They would imagine themselves as modern-day Israelites. There were a lot, a lot of biblical images that were that they drew on. Um, the cover of my book, for instance, is a is a snippet or an excerpt from a famous triptych by Stefan Jäger, a Banat Swabian painter from the early twentieth century. And here. Um, I go into it in the book and how significant, actually, this image becomes, not just for Swabians, but for Romanian Germans as a whole. And there are a couple of other interesting myths surrounding the origins of these groups. Um, part of the Saxon myth is about imagining themselves as betrayed crusaders um, who were left behind in Transylvania. And then in the 19th century, there's a, a neat little fairy tale or, or reference to a fairy tale where children were told, half in jest and half not, that they were actually the children of the abductees of the Pied Piper of Hamelin. Um, and so there, there's always a story or a sense of Saxons also um, feeling, and, and Swabians, but particularly Saxons, feeling betrayed, left behind, not fully understood by, say, German speakers elsewhere or Europeans uh, more broadly. So that roughly encapsulates um, the historical context and then also the way the historical context has been mythologized by the Germans themselves. Yeah, so there's a lot of history there um, and some cool stories. But the book um, didn't strike me as being mostly about history in the sense of this is what happened in the past. You write in the introduction that this book is about Romanian Germans making sense of modern Europe through their stories and memories. Um, what is it that about memory that makes it such an interesting thing to study? Yeah, it's a really, really good, really interesting question, but a very difficult one to answer because there's so much to be said about it. I think in, in tracing their stories, I hope that we get a sense of um, of 
the experience of that, that many Romanian Germans made in 20th century Europe. So in some ways, it's an experiential story that, that, that we encounter, or I hope that we encounter in the book. Um, so what I didn't want to do was simply insert Romanian Germans into a history of, of uh, Europe or European events, but rather that we get to hear European events um, from their perspective. And so in some ways, focusing on memory and the way in which these, these stories and narratives are told, um, one of the aims of the book was in some ways to decenter European history in which minorities, and to, to use a word that is often very loaded, peripheries in that sense, um, were not necessarily occluded from our view, but were quite central. And, and these actors are, are not the usual actors you would encounter. And nonetheless, by listening to their stories and by hearing how they, how they talk about their experience, we get a real sense of, of, of Europe as a dynamic place in the 20th, well, 19th already, but certainly 20th and 21st century. Um, more importantly, I think we also get a sense of how identity works by looking at uh, their stories and memories. Um, Romanian German memories and stories reveal that the um, the processes that constitute identity are also the way in which banal nationalism works. Right, so um, Romanian Germans aren't just aren't just simply Romanian Germans because they are, but rather they perform their identity over and over again. They negotiate it. They often um, have have great battles over what their conflict is. So it's very much about the performativity of identity at given any given moment. So they don't exist per se, but there are different layers of identity that are very reliant on performance in various settings at different times. And this is I, perhaps also one of the reasons why there's so much contestation in the book. They can't really agree on anything. They're constantly performing what they think they are, Saxons, Germans, national socialists, communists, migrants, whatever it might be. And as the title suggests, the memories and stories are plural, right? They don't, they don't, they, not, there's not one memory, there are memories, and they, they move and shift, they migrate, and hence the title, Migrating Memories. So I think that's really the, the nub of it, why memory makes it such an, an interesting thing or field to study. It, it reveals quite a lot. Um, one thing I noticed while you were talking is that quite a few times today, you've said that you're talking about modern Europe, um, not that this is a book about Romania. Uh, and it doesn't just tell the story of Romanian Germans in Romania, but a lot of your interviews were carried out among people living in Germany. So how does the transnational dimension change the sort of stories that are usually told about Romanian Germans? Yeah, it's, I mean, it, it develops in, in some ways the, the, the two points I just mentioned. I mean, it's interesting you should talk about this because I think when I initially got feedback from, um, I think, the, the series editors of, 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 of the series I'm in, um, I know. I remember one one comment in particular that was sounded a bit more skeptical as far as the transnational dimension was concerned. But I, I hope that I kind of stuck to it and stuck to my guns and 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 elucidated that a bit more in the in the book. But I do I do think that transnational lens is really important for the for the two points I mentioned. Um, that despite stories of certainty and rootedness, Romanian Germans like so many other groups are really complex, plural, disunited, you're right, they, they, you can't really put them in one box and say, here they are, Romanian Germans, two national labels put together, and that's the end of it. Um, migration changes the ways in which Romanian Germans talked and thought about themselves. Um, more interestingly, what, what, what I think the transnational dimension does is um, it, it thinks of Romanian Germans as one of the few groups that experienced the Cold War on, on 
in inverted commas, both sides of the continent, right? So uh, they, they, they're very much torn in the Cold War. Some are already in West Germany or elsewhere, in the Americas or the GDR or Austria or France, while others are in Romania. And it's, it's a very curious and, in a sense, unique, I mean, not quite unique, but certainly a privileged position to be able to talk about the two Europes, uh, to put it in very basic terms, um, from that position um, across borders with knowledge of, of, of um, issues that transcend the, both the Iron Curtain but also national boundaries. And that gives their stories particular clout. And so, as you, as you just indicated, Roland, um, for me as a historian, it's not good enough to situate Romanian Germans as either part of German history or Romanian history, although, of course, we could do that, but to use a transnational perspective to get at the granular material that makes up Romanian German experiences in the 20th century. And so the transnational perspective is both the material itself, right, the, the, the subjects, the, the, the Romanian Germans, the sources they leave behind, but also my, uh, my perspective uh, as well. Um, and, and maybe if I, if I can, just one other uh, observation on what, why transnational, what, you know, what makes a big difference. When it, whenever German minorities become part of sort of modern European history or they're mentioned, they're often stereotyped as uh, sort of overtly exuberant Nazis. And of course, there's, a, there's an element to that and it's a crucial part of their history. But it's worth remembering that they're also transnational in themselves. So not everything that they experienced or they digested or narrated uh, revolved solely around the question of German nationalism or the German state, um, but they were also part of vibrant literary and art scenes that, to differing degrees, were part of transnational currents, um, or they were part of sort of local ethnographic circles that fled into the small scale, into the local interest, away from the kind of overbearing story of nationalism or the nation state. And I think more broadly, um, what makes up Romanian German stories and experiences are also just on a very basic level, the experiences of young couples, of teachers, of vicars who were trying to shape their own lives uh, throughout that the, the 20th century into the 21st century, as many others were across Europe and beyond. And so it reveals that, it reveals a different perspective onto the experience of growing up, of, of living, of trying to navigate uh, different regimes and different uh, problems and different issues um, in Europe in the 20th century. Um, it, it's kind of ironic that in order to to get to the micro details, you have to go to a macro scale. Yeah, um, it's true. It, it is true. That, that, that is absolutely true. Yeah. Um, I, I just I just think it gives a, a very different perspective. I mean, if, if I can just add very, very briefly to that, I mean, I, I don't know if, you, I mean, you thankfully and helpfully and, and, and very, very happily you read the book. And I, I think there was always a tension between, on the one hand, these kind of very sort of known political events that we might recognize, right? These kind of milestones in European history. And then something, a, a different a, a different periodization, which is to, to focus on Romanian Germans and their lives. And they often sort of clash and come across these, these important uh, events in European history but in so doing, I think they, I hope that at least we look at them and think about these, these, these milestones in European history very differently. Um, yeah, I can imagine that researching this must have been a big challenge because your sources are scattered across different countries and across 100 years when 
you've got these major regime changes and wars. Can you tell us a bit about how you carried out the research for this project? No, sure. Um, I mean, as you say, it, the sources are quite varied. Um, the 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 real upside, I think, of Romanian Germans um, is that they have always tended to write a lot and thus leave lots of traces behind. Um, we can talk about it more later, maybe, but I, it, it really is astonishing just how much they wrote, how how and how how sort of self reflective um, a lot of the material is that or was that I came across. And so I spent a lot of time uh, in archives in both. Romania and Germany, um, in particular, I think, uh, just just to, to give you a sense also of how dislocated actually the community was, um, I spent I've always spent a lot of time in Gundelsheim, which is a, a, a small town north of Stuttgart. Um, you take the the the, the train um, out of Stuttgart; it takes about forty five minutes or so to to get there, and it's a a small town on the River Necker, very beautifully located. Um, and on the on the hill is a uh, a castle um, built uh, a Teutonic a Teutonic Knights castle, uh, which the Romanian uh, German community the, the, uh, purchased in in the in the um, uh, during the Cold War, and um, in it you have a, a care home for elderly Saxons um, who had you know migrated at some point. Um, you have a library and you have an archive. And in this archive, you have just astonishing documents. You have newspapers, but then also these so-called nachles, or the literary remains or the literary estates of um, sometimes well-known Saxon individuals and sometimes not so well-known Saxon individuals. And these would be families who then bequeath these remains to the archive. And going through the material really opened up a world of connections and reflections and of sort of intimacy across borders um, cr- throughout the 20th century into the 21st century. Um, and it's a really fascinating place just to think about what these sources are doing here in Baden-Württemberg, in the southwest of Germany, um, in some ways a random place with no connection, with no obvious connection uh, to Romanian German history, if you want to think of it in those terms, and none, and, and still, that's the place to go to to really get a, a, a really good insight into Romanian Ger- into Romanian German life and lives um, in the twentieth century. And um, yeah, I think I think back at it, it's, it's it, and, and I'll probably be going back at some point uh, again. And it's a it's a really lovely experience to be there. Um, you get to know the archivists, the librarians, and so on, and. Um, it really is where I think a lot of the archival material um, is, is situated. But there are other places too. There's the um, Hans Teutschhaus in Sibiu, for instance. Um, there's the IKGS in Munich. I also did oral history interviews in both Romania and Germany um, around 80, which would really act as testimonies of stories that we would and can encounter elsewhere and also allowed us to see changes in the way that Romanian Germans uh, spoke about particular episodes over time, right? Because the interviews were more contemporaneous, whereas some of the archival material um, was contemporaneous to whenever it was produced. Um, other um, sources uh, involved the so-called Landsmannschaften, which play a central role in the book, the Homeland Societies, that's the Homeland Societies of the Transylvanian Saxons and the Homeland Society of the Banat Swabians. And I used their sources a lot, um, and they, um, they, you know, they, they were they were situated in a particular political spectrum in the Cold War, often on the right, um, 
often very close to other homeland societies who were far more revisionist maybe in their in their in their views um and at the same time i also used clerical material as a counterpoint um so clerics often clashed with the homeland societies about where romanian germans ought to be and that material was really crucial for ascertaining uh, points of conflict over belonging over dealing with the past um over identity more broadly speaking and in addition to that i used newspapers um but also um artistic material drawings etchings um poetry you know, poets like adolf meschendorfer take up a quite a prominent role klingsor the literary uh, journal from the interwar period around heinrich zillich and so on but I, i'm sure we can we can talk about that as as we go forward um yeah it sounds like a lot of fun doing that research um i want to turn briefly to some of the periodization in the book um uh, particularly because you mentioned before that that's very problematic when you get to the the romanian germans because their periodization doesn't fit necessarily with how a lot of historians like to divide up time um so let's start with the 1930s because that's the one closest to my heart people right across Europe were attracted to fascism and Nazism during the 1930s and ethnic Germans were in Romania were no exception to the extent that you mentioned uh, a lot of people talk about them as exuberant Nazis. Um, that all turned out to be a little bit embarrassing after the Second World War um, and the revelations of what happened in the Holocaust though, didn't it? How, how did Romanian Germans deal with their past or remember their past in the second half of the 20th century? Did they try to brush it under the rug like the Romanian state did with its own involvement in the Holocaust? Or is the story a bit more complicated? With Well, I mean, I guess the story is always, always a bit more complicated when we look into it. I mean, the, that, that seems to be, that seems to be the, the case. And I think the, the, the um, so I, I guess the, the way to answer how they dealt with the past is to, to, to start uh, with the 1930s or even with the 1920s, because I think one, one thing or one, aspect that uh, Romanian Germans often emphasize certainly in the in the, in the immediate aftermath of, of the second world war is that well you know they this was a sort of slight naive um, alignment with Germany and they weren't really aware of what was happening in in Germany but actually if you look at uh, if you look at the kind of uh, sources in the 1920s and 1930s around uh, newspapers journals letters and so on they were pretty enthusiastic supporters of um, national socialist ideas long before Hitler took power in Germany. And that, that's worth noting. So um, it's not necessarily the 1933 or the 1930s that changes the Romanian German, German community uh, beyond recognition. A lot of those trends are already uh, around in the 1920s. I looked at newspapers such as the Hatzfelder Zeitung in uh, what is now Zimbolia in, in Romania on the, on the border with Serbia. Um, now, that newspaper, for instance, is, is a typical sort of local agricultural newspaper. And still, um, from 1924 onwards, when, which is when um, Hatzfeld or Zimbolia becomes part of Romania, um, quite late, it's a sort of border revision, um, you, you see national socialist elements creeping into it. Not that it's a national socialist newspaper or a fascist newspaper, but you just see it in articles, in letters, um, references to uh, conspiracies, to, to Jewish conspiracies, to, to, to ideas of blood and soil and so on. And in the 20s and 30s, Romanian Germans um, sort of engage and, and, and sort of um, um, really immerse themselves in an idea of rejuvenation, which is not uncommon across Europe, 
So you see a generational clash where um, these so-called rejuvenators or erneuerer um, around people like Hans Bella or Alfred Bonfart, um, these are um, Swabians and Saxons, um, really wanted to expunge the community from what they saw as sort of the decadent bourgeois aspects of it around establishment figures such as Rudolf Branch and Hans Otto Roth. And, um, and, and rejuvenation meant, of course, thinking about the biopolitic um, of Romanian Germans. And so more as the 20s uh, wear on and we move into the 30s, you see more and more um, um, thought around rejuvenation really take hold of the community. Um, Heinrich Tillich, who I mentioned, who's this great literary figure uh, or, or, or a luminary in the, in the, in the uh, early to mid-20th century, uh, a Transylvanian Saxon, um, founds this uh, journal Klingsor, which on the one hand produces some of the most cutting-edge modernist um, literature, but on the other hand also hosts um, some very uh, suspect uh, far-right um, national socialist I ideas, and that we see from, from the mid-20s onwards already. Um, so what happens after, and, and then, I mean, just, it, it's very difficult to really sum this, summarize this in, in, in such a short, short uh, space of time, and I know you know the, the material quite well, um, it is true, they become very um, enthusiastic Nazis, Saxons more than Swabians, even though Swabians end up in, in greater numbers in the, in the Waffen-SS. Um, and there are reasons for that that I, I could go into, but won't. Um, but undoubtedly, they, they, they become simply part of the kind of Nazi effort um, from the 1930s onwards, uh, to the extent that we can just talk of them as, as sort of gleichgeschaltet, of, as, as, as be becoming part of, of, of Nazi Germany, it becomes a state within a state within Romania um, by uh, 1938, 1940, uh, partly to do what's happening in Germany and partly to do also with uh, what was happening in Romania after 1938. Um, after the war, it becomes really difficult for them because uh, they are labelled Hitlerists. Um, they are deported in 1945, temporarily at least, to the Soviet Union. Um, then many of them are, 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 have come back, although some end up in the GDR or West Germany, and anti-fascism becomes the leading voice. And so they exposed to a to a discourse that doesn't fit at all with their own experiences and the way they remember their alignment. All the while, those Germans or Romanian Germans who are in West Germany um, come into contact increasingly um, with a more critical reflection of what Germans did in the war, in particular in the seventies and eighties. And this is very difficult for them to reconcile. Um, what I would resist, however, is to think about Romanian Germans as somehow. Uh, closed when it comes to in, uh, thinking or critically confronting uh, the, the national socialist past. In fact, they do very little else from the 70s onwards. There are constant battles over what national socialism meant for Romanian Germans. And in some ways, they're more vocal than we might expect from West German mainstream society. Um, we know, for instance, about the so-called historians dispute in West Germany, this kind of very elite, very male, very sort of high-minded, self-regarding um, debate that takes place between 86 and 89. Now, Romanian Germans are engaged in what I call a little historians dispute from the 70s onwards. It's out in the open. So we can't really say that they silent, they're, they're silent about their involvement. They are arguing very publicly, uh, and not just the, the elite figures in the Romanian German community, 
But well beyond that, it's not just people like Hans Bergel or Johann Böhm on the other, other side, not just the Landsmannschaft versus, let's say, a few insurgents. But it, everyone is doing this. Everyone's writing letters to the Siebenbürgische Zeitung, the Transylvanian Saxon newspaper, or to the Banata Post, uh, or elsewhere. They're writing letters to each other, accusing each other of not doing, not not sort of dealing with the past correctly, either from one or the other perspective. And it's very lively and visceral. So perhaps what my book suggests is that these uh, curious East Central European Germans are not as closed and 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 um, oppressive as we often imagine them to be. They're very, very open about it. Um, it's just that you have a large number of voices who resist in some ways, uh, resist seeing Romanian Germans purely through the lens of their, of their alignment with national socialism. Maybe a last point on that. Um, one of the leading voices in the book, Hans Bergel, a Landsmannschaft figure, but also an author who becomes embroiled in the trial in the 1950s, he uh, claims uh, at one point that um, but he says, our fathers, he means Romanian German fathers, spoke more about Auschwitz than their fathers, the West German fathers. So he manages to even turn it on his head and say, you know, Romanian Germans were always much more open about this than the West Germans. They're the ones who are sort of closeted and never dared talk about Nazism. And as polemical and deflective as much of that might be, uh, you know, looking back, there's a sort of an element of truth to it. They're just so vocal that it's impossible to come away from the sources I encountered, and say that they they, they were closeted and didn't didn't somehow uh, confront that that part of their past. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail, from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. All of which must have been very uncomfortable for a lot of people um, picking up those newspapers each week. So after, after the interwar period and the Second World War and the Holocaust comes state socialism in the Republic of Romania and also in the German Democratic Republic. Um, when Romanian Germans living in Germany talked and wrote to their relatives in Romania who were living under communist dictatorship, how did they address them? Um, what sorts of things did they want to talk about? Did they send medicines, gifts? Did they try to help them flee to West Germany? So what's going on during this period? Yeah, it's, a, it's a, uh, some really good questions. And I, so in, 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 in the book, I, I try to I try to give a sense of the relationship that Romanian Germans were able to establish across um, the Iron Curtain during during the Cold War from West Germany to Romania, because of course, as you as you indicate here, families were often split. You know, some some of them migrated, managed to migrate, or they fled, uh, but then stayed in touch. They then also sometimes visited them, um, both in West Germany but also in Romania. So sometimes Romanian Germans were allowed to visit relatives in West Germany, but only on their own. So they knew that you know they would keep their children behind or so. Um, but the main way of communicating was indeed by correspondence, so by letters. Um, and there is a, a dependency, a mutual dependency. I, I focus on a number of individuals, um, one or one family in particular, um, a brother and a sister, Roland Melzer and Marta Mesh. Roland Melzer and Marta Mesh are both from uh, Schesburg or Sigishwara. Um, and uh, Melzer, uh, again, 
ends up in in West Germany because he he worked at, at some point um, in the Third Reich and then just stayed there. Um, and they develop a curious dependency. It's not straightforward. Like on the one hand, you have Roland Melzer, who um, is this you know West German um, citizen who is able to send materials, whatever it might be, and um, his sister is very much dependent on it you know could you please send us um the following things and then he obliges and then she sends these kind of um sort of uh, bowing letters in response thanking him so you get a sense of an uneven relationship um in particular what matters is not necessarily gifts and materials but also increasingly mail order catalogs it sounds really banal and really uh, yeah just just very banal but actually it plays a huge role because it really stimulates the imagination um, Romanian Germans really live for these mail order catalogues, you know, Otto, Kaufhof, and others. They love it. Um, children as well, you know, they get to see toys that they're otherwise not used to. Um, so at that point, when we're thinking about relationships in, the, in that way, it's less about fleeing Romania and, 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 and more about imagining a Germany that might be. Um, at the same time, Romanian Germans in Romania also have a certain degree of power over their West German, Romanian German relatives. Um, Roland Melzer will often write to his sister saying, could you please remind me, you know, what is the name of that, of that pharmacy round the corner? Or, you know, can you tell me what exactly does that church look like again? So you can sense a longing. He visits her a couple of times, but nonetheless, he constantly has this sense of longing to remind him again of what is old homeland, his old hometown looks like. And that is the, the, the power that um, non-emigres, Germans in Romania, have um, towards uh, their, their, their Romanian-German emigre counterparts. There's also more. They, they, Romanian-Germans in Germany are able to give Germans in Romania uh, a helping hand when navigating the bureaucratic minefield uh, that existed for emigration either for visits or for, for emigration to Germany. And here, I think, Romanian Germans had an advantage over, over their, their other Romanian citizens. They just simply had an outlet or rather a, 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 a sort of stage, a, a post in, in, in West Germany where they could often say, can you help me with this particular uh, bureaucracy? And uh, Romanian Germans in Germany would oblige. Now, um, I think it's it's important also to just um, note two things. One is that um, emigration to Germany was not a foregone conclusion, as we might think. Um, despite living under the communist dictatorship, not all Germans in Romania were that keen to leave. And there's a huge battle that really emerges um, from the 1950s onward between different factions in the Romanian German community in Germany itself, uh, but also in Romania. Put, sort of explained more broadly, you have the homeland societies, the Landsmannschaften, who are pushing for emigration. They say yeah, Romanian Germans are not compatible with communism. They should leave. Um, so um, they, they clash with uh, the, the, the clerical circles who say, no, they should undoubtedly stay here in Romania. This is our homeland. And so, so that battle sort of rumbles on. But in the end, in, in 1977, there's a, there's a an agreement between uh, the West German Chancellor Helmut Schmidt and uh, Nicolae Ceausescu, which is to uh, sort of formally institutionalize the way in which payments to the Romanian state work 
to get Germans out of Romania. Um, and it's, it's quite, it's quite a, a, a tragic and actually horrible tale to think about that the West German state was happy, happy to pay for humans. Um, there's a similar story um, between Israel and Romania when it comes to Romanian Jews. But in the German case, um, there are simply categories in, into which Germans were placed, um, depending on how economically useful they were to the West German state. So the more skilled you were, the more you cost. And this was also a great opportunity for Ceausescu to, uh, to, to make up the, the deficit, the state deficit. Um, and if you look at the, the, the figures, actually, they're not that expensive to, to be really crude. Um, uh, sort of the, in inverted commas, the economically less useful ones were, were cost about um, 1,800 Deutschmarks, about 800 pounds in today's money, uh, whereas the, the really highly skilled uh, workers um, would be worth up to 11,000 Deutschmarks uh, per person. And so into this kind of uh, into this kind of agreement, you have these debates about where Romanian Germans uh, should end up. And uh, while it looks like a foregone conclusion, there is still a lot of a lot of conflict over whether or not emigration is the right way to go about this. In a different rendition, just very briefly, Roland, in a different rendition, my book may have not been called migration, migrating memories, but actually Exodus, because this is. Uh, part of the, the, the story is that there's a constant fear of exodus that hangs over the community starting in the 19th century when many Germans uh, left um, what is then Hungary, of course, uh, for the Americas. And then it seems to sort of take on its own dynamics in the Cold War, particularly the late Cold War. And of course, one of the reasons why there is this exodus and why people are paying to get out uh, is because Romanian Germans suffered under state socialism in Romania, perhaps more than most other ethnic groups, because they were generally seen as collectively hostile to communism. But some also worked together with the regime more than most people probably really want to admit. Um, I really don't like this binary of you're either persecuted or a collaborator, um, because it doesn't work in reality. But how do memories about persecution and collaboration shape Romanian German communities after the collapse of state socialism? In 1989? Well, I mean, the story is that, of course, the story that Romanian Germans tell is, of course, that Germans couldn't possibly be communists in Romania um, because that was just simply not compatible with being German. Um, at the same time, uh, they also had a sort of very interesting or very strong relationship actually to the GDR and would often say that, you know, Romania actually communism in Romania wasn't that bad because Romanians didn't really know how to do it properly, unlike the GDR where everything was far more stringent. So kind of fit, really fitting into these kind of ethnic stereotypes about, about you know, the, the slightly uh, lethargic Romanians versus the efficient Germans. Um, but, but the general story is exactly that. Germans couldn't possibly be communists. How on earth could they be? Um, but we see among Germans, Romanian Germans, exactly the same kind of um, collaboration, if you want to use that word, or cohabitation with with, with socialism, as as with any others, um, there, there is no real difference. In fact, if you look at the figures for party membership, minorities were, of course, often overrepresented in the Romanian Communist Party, which is a, you know an uncomfortable fact uh, for for Romanian Germans. Um, I, I, I pick up on one issue though that, that you mentioned whether. Uh, Germans suffered more under state socialism. I mean, I think it depends which period you look at. Certainly, um, 
early on in the in the late 40s and early 50s that may well be true um and there are moments where where they where they simply are are singled out the deportations although this wasn't the communist state of course in 45 uh, but then also in 1951 there's a wave of deportation to the to the Baragan in the east of the country um this wasn't necessarily targeted at germans but the region the borderland close to yugoslavia um just simply had quite a few German speakers and German communities that were targeted. There were also show trials um, that did target uh, the German community uh, in uh, between 1957 and 1959, two show trials in particular, the Black Church show trial and the Authors trial. Um, interestingly, that the, the real debates about, about uh, collaboration and uh, cohabitation um, didn't emerge that much during the Cold War. They're, they were far more interested in, in, in national socialism in the 1920s and 1930s. Um, it's really only after uh, 89, a bit before that as well, of course, already, but only after 89 where perhaps some of the kind of complications really come to the fore. So um, one um, um, aspect that I look at in particular is um, a, a, a figure called Igidal Schlattner, who is still alive today. He's a, an, an author, a, a theologian. He still lives in Romania. Um, he's a very interesting figure. And he was involved in one of these show trials, the author's trial in Brasov in Kronstadt in 1959. Um, he was arrested by the Securitate. He was tortured. Um, and as a result of this, I mean, I think we can all empathize with him as a result of this, he revealed the names of, well, in the end, sort of 20 individuals, but five in particular. Uh, and one of those, well, five authors, and one of those is Hans Bergel, who keeps popping up in my book. Um, his testimony uh, results in some very draconian uh, judgments against um, against, or sentences against these five authors and then um, further individuals, including his own uncle. Um, Hans Bergel, uh, Wolfgang Eichelburg and others are sentenced to, uh, to up to 95 years in prison. They are rehabilitated then in 1964. Um, but uh, his presence as, a, as an informant in a, in, a, in a way, an informant who was tortured, we should bear that in mind, his presence plays a role Years later, after 1989, um, this really erupts when Igenard Schlattner publishes his book, his novel, his semi-autobiographical novel called Rote Handschuhe, uh, Manoshi Roshi, that, that's uh, red, red Gloves, um, which is the second work in a trilogy in which he tries to sort of work through the, the 20th century from the perspective of, 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 an, of an individual. Um, so he publishes his book Rote Handschuhe Red Gloves in 2001, and then goes on a on a on a book tour, um, reading from his book. And until then, really, discussions about communism were muted because it was generally accepted that Romanian Germans were antithetical to communism and hadn't really been involved that much um, in the system, and in fact were always trying to flee. And then there's a famous scene in 2001, um, Ignaz Schlattner is reading in a small bookshop in the south of Munich, and in the audience, of course, is Hans Berger, who they, they knew each other very well, they were friends before the, the, the show trial in 59, and he stands up and confronts him and says, you know, the whole book, everything you're saying is a lie. And this then triggers a huge uh, a discussion and debate in, in, in among or in Romanian German circles, particularly in the Siebenbürgische Zeitung, the Transylvanian Saxon newspaper in Germany, about what 
the legacy of communism is. And, and, and looking at this, uh, which I do, um, we see a, a sort of step change that takes place over the next five to ten years. The, the main voices in the Romanian-German community, the Landsmannschaft voices, the Homeland Society voices, they try to uh, really hammer Igen Schlatner, portraying him as a traitor, as someone of weak character who caved into the Securitate. I mean, this guy was tortured, right? Um, and, and, and people pull rank on him. That's the initial response. You know, this is a traitor. His, his story is not representative. Look at people like Hans Bergel who, you know, held, held, held the line, took the sentence and then, you know, came to Germany later. Um, Schlattner is not the person we want to talk to. And also he stayed in Romania. What a strange, what a strange individual. But in the broader German, uh, uh, among the German, broader German public, Schlattner's book was received quite positively, not just for the, for the content, um, but also uh, for, for its literary value as well. And to, to, to a less extent, but to some extent, that also happens in Romania. And then over the, over the course of the years, um, that, that initial controversy dies down a bit. Um, and a few years later, 2008, 2009, another individual, Carl Gibson, a Banat Swabian in this case, who founded, um, along with Romanians, the uh, a, a sort of independent trade union in the 1970s as part of a sort of, you know, that kind of Charter 77 moment in Czechoslovakia. Um, and he uh, singles out Hertha Müller, who, of course, you know, was a very, very unfortunate decision to do this in 2008. He writes a book called Symphony der Freiheit, Symphony of Freedom, in which he talks about Hertha Müller and Richard Wagner and others in the so-called um, Aktionsgruppe Banat or Banata Autorengruppe, the Banat Authors Associate or group in the 1970s, talks about them as quasi-collaborators, uh, that they weren't really opposed to communism. And he along with his independent trade union, was the true representative of the sort of the, the German independently-minded uh, non-conformist. Now, it's, it's, it's a poor choice because of a year, a year later, of course, Hertha Müller won the Nobel Prize for Literature with her work on, 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 uh, well, on Germans being deported to the Soviet Union. And what's interesting, it's almost like the bubble just bursts. Um, the response by Romanian Germans... Um, the very same Romanian Germans who'd, uh, who'd praised Hans Bergel and who'd hammered Ignaz Schlattner now sort of had turned and said, you know, actually Gibson's, Gibson's overdoing it and Hertha Müller and others, you know, they, they managed to negotiate their position. So over the course of just seven, eight years, you see a rapid shift in the discourse um, towards accepting that, of course, co cohabitation or collaboration or just sort of living in the, in, in, during communism of course, that 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 existed, um, and the idea that Germans were sort of uniquely immune to communism, um, I think over that over that decade had certainly been exposed as uh, nothing more but 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 a fantasy, really. Um, and uh, since then, of course, things have changed, and 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 I think a lot of that uh, a lot of that has just simply become accepted as part of of the Romanian German experience. Hertha Müller uh, herself, of course, um, had to, had to face um, some very painful revelations about her friend Oscar Pastior, um, another poet and, and literary figure, uh, who after his death in 2006, it was revealed that 
um, he had spied on Hertha Miller as an informant for the Securitate, and of course, her, the subject of her book that won her the prize, the Nobel Prize, um, was based on her friend Oscar Pastio. So that's a very painful moment for her as well. Um, and so uh, that that period is really crucial for the Romanian Germans to uh, confront um, uh, the, the the question of. Well, collaboration, cohabit. I agree with you that that binary is often difficult, uh, but let's call it cohabitation in in some ways. Yeah, I, I like the word cohabitation a lot better because fundamentally you do have to live somehow in this in this regime. Um, your book talks, and you've talked so far today, a lot about memories migrating over time and space, but people also moved, um, particularly after nineteen eighty nine large numbers of Romanian Germans left Romania and moved to Germany. How does that migration impact um, the identity of communities that are left inside Romania? Yeah, I mean, this is, it, it's, it's often the forgotten part of, of this story, right? Because um, in so many ways, the, the, the big moment of migration happens after 1989, um, sort of between 1990 and 1992, around 200,000 Romanian Germans left the country and bear in mind, the, the, you know, the figure, 200,000, it's a lot. Um, but it's, it's even more when you think about the overall figures. So when, uh, the, 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 when Romania um, uh, incorporates Transylvania and the Banat and, and, and Maramuresh and other places in 1918, there are roughly 750,000 German speakers in Romania. Um, the start of the Cold War, it goes up a bit, actually, but it's the start of the Cold War, they're probably... 500, 550,000 Germans goes up a bit because some of them return and then it starts dwindling away. So all of a sudden, um, and then you have sort of a constant stream of migration. So from 77 to 89, there are around 12,000, 13,000 Germans leave every year. But then 1989 happens and um, the borders don't open completely, but of course they open far more and people are able to to leave. And so over the course of a year and a half, really, 200,000 leave so there, there aren't many people left behind and it's often a forgotten part of it um, and there is a set that sense of exodus that i keep talking about you know the the, the sense that this this community is just going to disappear you know centuries of it is just going to disappear all of a sudden um, that sense seems to come true for the for the first time and yet of course here it's also not 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 the the, the, the full stop as it were in, in, in real or in, in, in actual terms, what, what happens is that um, classrooms empty overnight. And there are real um, sad stories of teachers turning up on the 1st of September and then, let's say, 15 students in the classroom. And by the 15th of October, there will be five students in the classroom. And by the, uh, by, by the new year, there'll be two, more, two students left. And the same happens with churches. So there's a kind of emptying of the community in this, in this in, in initial period after 1989. Now, for those who stay behind, there's a, a sense of defiance in some ways, that they're just not going to go along with it, and they're just going to stay here. Um, of course, the demographics tends to be older uh, of those who stay behind. Um, there's a, a really interesting moment where Ignaz Schlattner, the, the person I just mentioned about, the author who was involved in the show trial, where he, he's asked in 2003, I think it is, in an interview, um, how long have you been you know, how long have you lived in Romania? And he answers 850 years um, as, as a way of saying, you know, I'm just not going anywhere. I'm part of this kind of long story of Germans in, in Transylvania. And so there is a sense of defiance against those who seem to have been lured over by West Germany and then um, 
um, reunited Germany. Um, but there's perhaps a, the, the greater change of, of um, identity happens not necessarily to the communities that were left behind in Romania, but actually uh, to the Romanian German emigre community who uh, in, in different ways felt maybe guilt or abandonment or a sense of loss. I mean, don't forget, particularly for, for older people, they often end up in care homes in very strange, what seems to them very strange geographies, right? In places they don't really know. They only know from, from correspondence or from, from images and imaginings. Um, Germany itself, of course, presented itself very differently to the idea of Germany, as, the, as, as many Romanian Germans had expected. You know, they thought of Germany as some kind of, you know, sophisticated land where everybody quoted Goethe and Schiller. And in reality, certainly in the 1990s, they turn up and there's German hip hop. And it's, it looks a very different place to what they expect. Um, curiously, though, um, after 89, or certainly in the new millennium, there's a revitalization of the uh, German, the, the sort of rump German community back in Romania. Um, they, they, there's a rediscovery of, uh, of, of German cultural traces in Romania by a whole host of, uh, of, of different, of different um, uh, groups. So it's the Saxons and Swabians themselves who start traveling back on holiday, um, the phenomenon of the so-called Sommersaxen, summer Saxons who, you know, would spend the summer in Transylvania with more money, of course, um, who would buy back homes as holiday homes. Um, you have a, 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 a tourism industry that discovers places like Sibiu or Sigishwara uh, or Timishwara as, you know, fairly nice places. And part of the story of these nice places are, of course, the German castles and the German architecture and the German communities. And so there is a kind of revitalization that takes place. And of course, in some ways, and I don't want to sound too teleological about it, but in some ways it kind of culminates in, uh, in, in the presidency of Klaus Johannes himself, um, a, a, a Saxon um, who makes his way up through the various political institutions from uh, head teacher to mayor of Sibiu to president of Romania. Um, so it's not the end. The, 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 the migration of Romanian Germans in 1990, 1991, 1992 is not the end of the community. It just changes, I guess, the dynamics of how Romanian Germans imagine their place in Europe, necessarily so. And perhaps the impact then is bigger on those who have left rather than those uh, who stayed behind. So if we're talking about the, the perception of Europe, um, could you tell us a bit about how Romanian Germans think about the European Union? Um, does the fact that it's a transnational community make them more likely to be sympathetic to something transnational organization like the EU? Um, how did 2007, when Romania becomes joins the EU, how does that impact the Romanian Germans? Well, there, there are there are several trends that that um, emerge in the in the 1990s and 2000s. Um, on the one hand, Romanian Germans like to think of themselves as these European bridge builders, um, that they are, they are in, a, in, a, in a position exactly in the way that I kind of spoke about earlier. They're in this kind of unique position. They understand both East and West, and they're able to sort of bring together Europe in ways that others can't. They're multilingual, um, certainly bilingual, often multilingual. They speak German, they speak Romanian, they speak sometimes Hungarian, they can speak Luxembourgish, 
and so on. So they, they place themselves as these kind of quintessential Europeans that are able to, to talk about Europe and, uh, in, 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 in really, really knowledgeable ways, ways that Germans or Romanians or people from France can't. Um, so that's one element. And I'll, I'll, I'll talk about that a bit more in, in, in a short while. But when it, comes, when it came specifically to the question of um, EU enlargement, initially, um, there was a, far, a, a, a sort of a stronger sense of, uh, of resentment towards enlargement, um, not just towards Romania, enlargement, uh, um, including Romania in 2007, but also that, uh, that big moment of enlargement in 2004, um, which included much of, of East Central Europe. Um, why? Why is that the case, we might ask, if they see themselves as these bridge builders? Well, partly because they took an active decision to leave Romania, right? This was, a, this was part of a story of, of what they saw as oppression. Uh, they needed to flee, they needed to leave, they needed to go to what they saw as their, their, their real homeland and then often were disappointed at the time, West Germany and then later Germany. Um, and so enlargement, in a sense, undercut that story. Because what was the point of leaving if you could have just waited another 10, 15 years and then become part of a, a European community? So initially, at least, enlargement was seen as a challenge to their own stories um, because their story was about escaping the East. And this seemed to go against everything that they had thought about and everything that they had decided. Um, but, but nonetheless, you have this story of them as bridge builders with a superior understanding of Europe. Hans Berger, for instance... Uh, claimed in 2004 that Europe needs a new center before sort of uh, pontificating about how Romanian Germans would, would be able to be these kind of quintessential middle Europeans um, uh, uh, in, 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 in understanding that. Um, but their, their relationship is always complex. So in the run-up to 2007, there are numerous and countless articles in the Romanian-German press, and particularly the Romanian-German press in Germany, um, don't forget, there is still a vibrant press in Romania, German language press, or, or seen, I should say, in Romania uh, in the 2000s, right up to the, the present day. But particularly in Germany, there was, there was a real resistance saying, this country is totally corrupt. You know, this country cannot be let into the EU. It's going to be the end of the EU. And then 2007 comes along and suddenly everything changes. Um, they start talking about it very differently, partly because simply the, the, the facts on the ground had changed, right? So some of them see um, 2007, the enlargement, as an opportunity to maybe make some claims um, uh, against Romania for restitution. They try to, they try to, make, uh, they try to put, bring Romania of, to, to court uh, to have um, their property restituted in some ways or recompensed. Um, all of that is completely... Uh, has no chance and doesn't go really anywhere, but it's certainly seen as an opportunity. And then, actually, what they also realize, 2007 coincides with Sibiu, Hermannstadt, being the European capital of culture. And here are the good and the great of Europe um, going to Sibiu and celebrating what, in the end, is a very German representation of the city. And actually, Romanian Germans quite like that. Um, it seems that Europeans are sort of immersing themselves in in the, the cultural traces of uh, of of, um, of Romanian Germans, and that seems to them also a great opportunity to, to to be placed center stage in European discourses about Europe, about what it is that Europe is. At the same time, 
Um, you also have new developments around saving Saxon villages. You know, these are villages around Transylvania that were abandoned, uh, largely abandoned, not completely, but largely abandoned, where to their horror, and of course there's always an element of racism here, to their horror, a lot of Roma moved into. Um, but there are new initiatives to save them, particularly the Mihai Eminescu Trust, um, where Prince Charles and also uh, MPs like Zach Goldsmith, or former MPs, I should say, um, like Zach Goldsmith, were quite instrumental. So British voices who would, I think, see Transylvania as their own kind of fantasy of what England might look like, um, some kind of imagined uh, you know, medieval past. And so these, these new connections, these new possibilities of um, serious political power being poured into Transylvania and to the Banats, um, were, were great moments for, for Romanian Germans to, to reinvent perhaps what Romanian Germans were and how they could perhaps salvage their own, their own cultural traces and their own life in Romania. Romanian Germans in Romania, those who had stayed behind, by, by contrast, always had a vexed relationship that on the one hand, they had decided not to emigrate, which is a conscious decision as well. So um, enlargement was was seen as yeah positive on the one hand, but also a challenge to their own decision not to emigrate. And um, commentators on the Romanian state, um, such as Anneli Utegabani, who was often ridiculed by emigres as uh, Gabanescu to say that, yeah, she's really Romanian. Um, she would give these kind of nuanced assessments of what Romania is, how Romania fits in with enlargement, and certainly in the run-up to 2007, didn't necessarily engage in the kind of polemics that emigres did. But they too then also see opportunities after 2007 um, in similar ways to emigres. That is, there is money, there is power, there are connections that previously weren't possible around um, um, renovation, reconstruction, and so on. So just to give you one, one, one other example, um, famously the, um, the, the church in uh, Bistrica or Bistritz uh, in northern Transylvania um, burnt almost to the ground in 2008. I think if that had happened 10 years before, 20 years before, not much you could have done. But in 2008, um, much of that had changed and actually there was uh, far more potential for raising money. And the church has been re rebuilt um, and so those kind of stories, I think, played a really important role among emigres and non-emigres to, to really bring home the message that actually this enlargement has given them a, a new lease of life, that the exodus may have not happened yet, that actually there is still a lot of potential um, to draw on that idea of Romanian Germans as bridge builders. And along with Klaus Johannes as the figurehead of Romania, I think that story still um, bubbles along um, right until this present day. It's it's amazing how multifaceted uh, memory is. On the same thing, you can have three or four different feelings about it simultaneously. Uh, and so one last question, and this is a methodological question. Almost all the stories that you tell in this book are stories about arguments. Romanian Germans in the pages of the book seem to have been constantly arguing with each other about who they are, what happened in the past, what it all means. Do you think there's something about this community that makes them particularly argumentative? Or is that just something that comes from us being human? Um, what makes arguments and disagreements such a fertile topic for a historian such as yourself? Yeah, it's a great question. So, of course, you know, we always imagine 
some kind of particularism around whatever we're studying. This group or this particular moment or this place is is unique and and and, and, and you know has has perhaps the most potential to reveal something. Um, but I do think there there is something in it that Romanian Germans write a lot and argue a lot. They are quite argumentative. I'm not saying that it's unique. I'm just saying there is something there's something about them. There's something really really strange, uh, strangely argumentative about them. They left behind and continue to leave behind just so many sources. I mean, sometimes I just you know I would sit in the archives and just go through these the the the, the archive and material and just think. Do you guys ever? Do you guys ever shut up? Do you ever? Do you ever stop? Do you ever stop thinking about who you are? This is. It just never ends. And if I can just give you one story, it's it's a, it's an anecdote. It's not in the book, but I think it reveals maybe a bit about it. I mean, you know, I mentioned my teachers and my friends and and so on, and uh, the way in which they stuck out in some ways just by maybe through mannerism, through accent, maybe also in what they said. But um, there was a conference I, I went to a few years ago. It's about four or five years ago in Jena, in 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 Germany. And um, it was on um, on Germans in, in Southeastern Europe, mainly on Romanian Germans, and um, organized by the IKGS in Munich. And maybe just a, a shout out here to, to, to people like Florian Kuravillach and, uh, and, and, and Enrico Dartz and so on, who organized it at the time. And I knew a lot of the participants. You know, it's a small circle of people. We, we kind of know each other. And it was a very nice conference, a workshop, and um, the papers were great, and I, I enjoyed it a lot. And, um, and then on the way back, um, about four or five of us went to to to, to the station. It's called Jena Paradis, right? So the paradise of Jena, and we're waiting for the train to Berlin. And um, it, it 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 arrives, it stops, and then uh, three people get off. Um, a sort of a, a couple in their I don't know forties or so, and then an, an elderly lady in their seventies, and they're bickering. They're all bickering really loudly. And as they walk past us, we just hear this accent and all of us look at each other and say, my goodness, A, they seem to be everywhere. And they never stop arguing. They were Saxons, very unmistakably, Transylvanian Saxons arguing about how to disembark from the train, right? Um, and so that, that story sort of encapsulates Romanian Germans in some ways. They, 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 they really are very vocal and very loud. Um, so that's maybe an answer in relation to Romanian Germans specifically, but more broad. I think you ask a, a, a broader conceptual question here as well, um, which is about you know why we're interested in in conflict or disagreement, um, um, and we are. I think we are, but I think partly because it shows where perhaps hotspots in societies are, right? Where 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 are the kind of the the issues that really drive on. Um, Debates about belonging or identity or political debates or social norms and so on. But I think what arguments also show is that uniformity, this idea of uniformity, um, is a complete illusion. It's something that I think all of us reflect on the whole time, right? When we write about, uh, I don't know, whatever it might be, Germans or, you know, what and how, 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 what French ideas were in the 19th century. Well, that, that always assumes a kind of uniformity in some ways that. It's, it's in so many ways an illusion. Um, Romanian Germans were never united, and of course we have to use we have to use labels. Um, but it's it's never a, a question of unity. It's it's more a uh, a category which allows us to perhaps explore these disagreements and these arguments, which then reveal much broader issues and problems. Um, groups aren't uniform; they don't speak with one voice, but they are complex and they disagree. And I think. In the end, that's what makes us makes people part of a group. It doesn't have to be 
the kind of labels that, that, that I've been writing about in this book, at least, but it can be um, labels of professional expertise, professional belonging, of generation, of gender, um, of, of whatever it might be. But that, what's, that's what, in a sense, constitutes the group. And as you say, um, it, it's also what makes us human in that way. Um, thank you very much, James. Uh, it's an absolute pleasure talking to you. And I feel like I understand um, Romanian Germans much better now than I did um, an hour ago. Thank you so much, Roland. Um, really, really nice talking to you and um, also very informative for me, going back on your book and thinking about how to explain it in, in, yeah, in an hour, in, in roughly an hour. So I really enjoyed it. So thanks a lot. Mm-hmm.